0: Father, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. We're grateful for the privilege that it is to know you and to be in your presence. For your spirit to be here, for us to hear your word, and for us to see Jesus. So we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. Amen. So a lot of times, it can be fascinating in the Psalms, to see what the psalmist is praying about, and then to see if maybe you could kind of reconstruct where the psalmist is coming from. Especially if they're the psalmist from David. Because we know so much about David's life. It's so interesting sometimes to see if we can peg that moment. This is one of those where it's not very easy to. The psalmist, it's inscribed to David, simply opens up with this prayer, Preserve me, O God, for in you do I put my trust. We're not given a lot of information. We don't know where he's coming from or what he's going through. If you look at the life of David, you've got a ton of options. All we can see is that it seems like he's in some sort of pickle, a life-threatening pickle, or maybe he's just come out of one. But one of the things that's so interesting about this psalm is that the prayer doesn't last very long. Preserve me, O God, for in you I have put my trust. And then after that, David gives us a meditation, or maybe an argument. The prayer ends, and instead he goes on to tell us why it is that he is so confident, so sure, that with his one line, he has gone to the right place for help. Why he's so sure that he has lifted up that prayer to the right one. David knows that there are other options. He acknowledges those other options. But he also knows, because he's seen it, that everyone who's ever followed after those other gods has only gotten trouble. But the Lord, on the other hand, has given him a bountiful life and a safe and secure land that's even been promised to David and to generations after him. He knows that because of the goodness of this God, because of his faithfulness, that he actually has nothing that is good apart from this God. So where else would he go? Where else could he possibly go for help in the time of trouble? In fact, because he knows this God and because this God has been so good to him, he knows that he can have hope even in the middle of danger. He says, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. You won't abandon my soul to the grave. And even more than that, David knows that this God is more than just a way out of death. He's not just an escape hatch. He offers true Full life there is fullness of joy in his presence there's something that flows out of him that flows out of being with him that satisfies more than anything else can at his right hand is pleasure forevermore And so kind of running throughout this whole psalm is one central contrast it's this God who pours out pleasure and goodness on his people when they are near him and then there are these other gods. David's not even going to say their names. He actually says, I'm going to keep their names off my lips. But there are people who go to those gods. There are even people, people even in Israel, who would claim to worship David's god, the god of Israel, but who at the same time would want to go after these other gods. Because while David has found that the the right hand of God, in God's presence, there's pleasure forevermore. These people don't want God. They don't want his presence. They just want the things that he can offer them. And you know who else can offer those same things? Baal or Asherah or Ishtar or Molech or any of these other Canaanite gods. They want the things that those gods might promise them. So they have no problem kind of mixing the bag a little bit and going both directions. These gods would offer things like security, or prosperity, or pleasure. All these little things that are just little tiny fake copies of joy, the joy that David knows. People would worship them and they'd make offerings to them because they promised the things that they thought would offer a great life. But what David realizes is that those gods, those other gods, they don't offer life at all. You know how he talks about drink offerings of blood? you go to those gods for life, you don't receive life. If you drink from their cup, it's not a cup of life. It's not a cup of salvation. It's just a cup of death, a cup of blood. Israel, on the other hand, this is why this this drink offering of bloodline is so kind of jarring. Throughout the law, God tells Israel, "You, you never, you never consume the blood of anything. There's this line that runs throughout there that The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. Blood equals life. And you never cross that boundary from life into death. You don't do it. It's an abominable practice. And yet these people offer drink offerings of blood. It says they even would drink them. It's foul. It's meant to feel foul when you read it. So this gospel reading, John 6, I think that, that repulsion that's actually woven through the law that shows up in the psalm, might actually, ironically, be underneath the people's rejection of what God says, or of what Jesus says. When Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me, you have no life, I bet many of those people heard that, and they were jarred. Because they would have said, no, we don't ever drink blood. We're Israelites. Our law says strictly not to do that. That's terrible. That's disgusting. That's repulsive. That's what idolaters do, but we don't do that. So that's why they go away. But Peter, you don't know what exactly is running through Peter's head. You don't know exactly how far into this Peter is saying, but he has a glimpse of something. He has a glimpse of a God who gives himself so his people can have life. I was really Struck by these two verses that are right next to each other in the psalm. So in verse 5, David talks about these drink offerings of blood that he's not going to drink. But in verse 6, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He doesn't say the Lord will fill my cup. He says the Lord will be my cup. And what could that mean if it doesn't mean that God himself is going to fill the cup with himself. Peter is getting a glimpse, I think, of this psalm actually coming into its full meaning in Jesus. That Jesus himself is the one who is going to die, who's going to cross over from life into death, and then is going to come back. And if he comes back with this resurrected life, and if out of that resurrected life, he fills your cup it is no longer a cup of death. It's not a cup of death like the the little gods would have given you. It's a cup of life because Jesus' life doesn't end. And if he fills that cup and gives it to you to drink, it's an entirely different thing. That's why Peter can say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. A cup full of life that doesn't end I think that's the truth that Peter has a little glimpse of here. And that's why he knows there's nowhere else to go. Just like David, he knows there's no other God, there's no other thing that can give that life, that life that doesn't end. There's no other cup that can be filled with this pleasure and beauty and fullness of just simply being in God's presence forever. Unmatched security and prosperity and joy because it flows straight out of the life of God himself. So here's where that picture hit me this week. This picture of these little gods who promise life but only give death compared to this Jesus who fills the cup with himself and gives eternal life. Here's where it hit me. Obviously, Baal and Asherah and Ishtar and Molech and all of the other guys. Uh, we don't have little idols to them that we gather around and bow to and, and, and worship. Uh, probably for very few of us is that some sort of live temptation. But the things that they promise, like security or prosperity or pleasure or what el- whatever else, those are things that for us as humans have actually never stopped driving the things that we do, never stopped driving our behavior. We might have different names attached to those things, but we still run after them. And so I was struck by just how much of my own energy and activity and effort just gets spent, poured out, chasing after those things that can just never give what they promise. I think that's true for all of us. We don't give blood offerings to Baal and Asherah and Ishtar, but we do still pour our own lives out for the sake of these things that we are so often convinced are going to fulfill those promises for us. And so while I was reading through these passages and just kind of sitting and trying to wrestle with them, I had these lines from Isaiah 55 just kind of bouncing in my head the whole time. God says to his people, why? Why do you labor for these things that cannot satisfy? You're hungry, but why are you spending your money on things that aren't bread? Stop doing that. Come, listen, come and eat, come and feast. No money, no price, no cost, just come to my table. I think for us It's a call for us to resist the urge to seek in other places the things that only God can give. It's a call for us to resist this compulsion to just spin our wheels, to just run continually on this treadmill, laboring for things that would promise a different kind of security, or a different kind of pleasure, or a different kind of joy, or a different kind of satisfaction, or relief, or affirmation, but that never fulfilled those promises to stop running after these things that can never actually pay us back with the things that we want. If we pour ourselves out for those things, what are we going to do when our jobs or hobbies or sports teams or whatever else just can't stand up under the weight of all that we've placed on them? Even the best of things, parents, children, spouses, what are we going to do when they can't stand up to that weight that we've placed on them? when we've sought all of these ultimate things from people who just can't give it. David saw very clearly in Psalm 16 that running to other gods was not the answer. And for us, neither is pouring out more of our lives, doubling down on this bet that was never going to pay off, running after things that just can't satisfy. If that's what we do, maybe the best that we could ever get for ourselves is just a little bit of distraction. But what, if that, what is that if it's not just spending our money for things that aren't bread? Things that won't fill our hunger. Things that can at best just distract us from the, back, the fact that we're hungry and feel empty. Even the best things in this life, on their own, detached from the beauty and the goodness of God, can't fill those things. So that's a hard-sounding word, kind of, bleak, kind of a bleak picture, I think it's full of good news. Because I think that we all know that that's true and we've all experienced it. But it's such good news to know instead that we have a God who doesn't call us to pour ourselves out all over the ground, to spill ourselves as a sort of blood offering, to give our lives to these things they can't satisfy. It's not what God wants from us. Instead, we have a God who has said, no, I will fill your cup. I will fill it with this life that you can't buy. Come and feast with no money and no price because I give it to you. He offers pleasures forevermore, fullness of joy just simply in his presence. And there's even more good news because all of you, all of us are here because we do actually believe that that's true. We're all here because we've tasted some of that. We've gotten glimpses of it and we want more or we've heard of that and we want what we've heard of. And yet wherever you are kind of on that spectrum or on that walk, the good news is that you haven't even come close to exhausting what God would give you. Jonathan Edwards, theologian in the 1700s, would talk about heaven being this place where God is just continually pouring himself out, continually showing himself to us, and we'll just continually receive more and more of his goodness, and it's inexhaustible. But that's not just held off way off in the future. We get glimpses of it now, real tastes and experiences of that now, real participation in that now. And God is inexhaustible even now. We are exhaustible, but he is not that's good news. It's good news to know that as good as God has been to you, you haven't even scratched the surface yet of what he would give and what he would offer of himself. There's no new law or new burden attached to this good news. It's simply just an invitation to lay the burdens of these false gods down, to leave them alone. And if it feels like that burden is too heavy to lay down on your own without being crushed by it, bring it to the Lord. If you don't know where to start with this, maybe just simply stop and just be in his presence. Maybe the first step is just to still your body and to calm your heart for a few minutes and to just rest. Rest with him. I think one of the things that we, that we see is that God won't leave that space that you've created or that you might ask him to create in your heart. He won't, he won't leave it empty. Whatever space all of those things have taken up in you that you feel like you can't do without, whatever space those things leave behind in you, he will fill it with himself. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasures that we can't even comprehend, that we haven't even scratched the surface of. No new law, no new burden, just an invitation. Lay those false gods down. Don't labor after things that can't satisfy. Come. Come to my table. Without money and without price, just feast. We have a God who fills our cup with, with himself, who gives himself. That's good news. Amen.